0: My vibration must have changed because I started drawing people to me who were so well-practiced in consent and had all this experience in like BDSM and kink and all this stuff. And I was like, this is so crazy. I didn't even have to do this consciously.
1: On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're talking to intimacy coordinator Mia Schachter about consent and how it can be sexy. She is an intimacy coordinator for film and television, an educator, writer, and a podcaster. On set, she provides a variety of services, including choreography, negotiation of nudity riders, and emotional support to actors, as well as consultation on things like sexuality, prosthetics, LGBTQIA plus issues, ethical non-monogamy, and more. She also teaches boundary and consent classes with private clients. We are so excited to have her on the show today to discuss more on consent and boundaries. So Mia, thank you for being here.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So can you just give us a real quick overview of how you got into this line of work and what exactly it is that you do?
0: Yeah, well, there's so there's like two separate things. There's this private stuff that I do one on one in these classes that I teach, which you mentioned. And then there's the second thing, which is intimacy coordination. So I got into intimacy coordination uh, in a very I kind of like tripped and fell into it. I um, I was I moved home to Los Angeles uh, a little over two years ago. And a friend of mine asked if I wanted to teach or teach, write a romantic comedy about, um, about a, a sex choreographer for movies. And we both kind of thought like, well, this must be a job, but we weren't really sure. Um, and then almost immediately, like within a month of starting to write this movie, um, all these articles and interviews started coming out about this new job in Hollywood called the uh, called an intimacy coordinator. And we realized we had to kind of restructure the script and like really investigate what this job was because it was a lot bigger than what we had thought, you know, it's not someone who just comes in and like tells you where to put your hands and move your legs, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we started rewriting the movie and then I got a job as a casting assistant on, on a TV show and we hired an intimacy coordinator, so I reached out to her and said, "I'm writing this movie. Can I interview you for my main character?" and she said yes and this was this was Amanda Blumenthal, who um was the only intimacy coordinator in Los Angeles at the time uh and um and this was like a year and a half ago oh wow um, yeah so so i I met up with her and interviewed her, and at the end of the interview, I said like, are you, are you training people to do this? Like, I would love to do this job. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll pick up your dry cleaning and get your coffee. Like I'll work for you for free. And she really needed to train people. She wanted to train people. She wanted to learn how to train people, but also wanted to be able to confidently recommend other people when she couldn't take a job. Um, and at the time there was no one else doing it in Los Angeles. So, so you were she,
2: like the second intimacy coordinator in Los Angeles.
0: Well, what happened was, so she trained me and two other people. So there were three of us training at the same time. And then in, throughout that time, two people who had been doing it, one in Chicago and one in New York, moved to LA. Mm. Um, and so I became, and then I think I was the first one working from my cohort. So I think I was the fourth in Los mm. Angeles. Got it. Um, but then how I started doing this, this, this other work um, this like kind of boundary and, con- and consent work and teaching it and and sort of coaching it privately um, was out of out of my training to be an intimacy coordinator um, and then various other kind of modalities that I had worked in and and trained in a little bit, I started to kind of put together uh, these these classes that I was offering to actors, acting classes and and directing classes um. And the more I was doing that, the more I was finding that, like, it it really seemed like there was a need for this information um, in a really digestible and, like, approachable way that isn't super clinical and doesn't make people feel bad or guilty. Um, and to help... And, and that so many people were struggling with self-advocacy. Um, mm. and, and for me, that really came out of... Um, like decades long, uh, like meant, um, gut and autoimmune struggle that I was going through. And, and through that, I was really learning how to advocate for myself. And like, I had these like really non-negotiable boundaries, um, that I, at the time, wasn't really calling boundaries, but so much of my recovery after the kind of the physical stuff was kind of taken care of was emotional, um, and, you know, trauma in the body and, and all this other stuff. Um, and like learning to communicate and stand up for myself and feel like really feel, uh, my boundaries and my limits and my needs and, um, and get really in touch with that kind of embodied sense of, um, of what I needed. And so I kind of developed a practice of, of helping, of teaching people how to do that for themselves. Um, and now I have like four or five, uh, private, clients and and you know I was doing it I was offering it for free as I was kind of like putting it together and trying to figure out if it was actually something that had any like merit to it um and it was just so it was clearly so impactful for people like i i was really blown away um and so i started at at you know january 1 2020 i was like all right i do this professionally this is what i do and i i charge money for it and um and i'm like now pretty confident about what it is that i offer that's awesome <laughs> well, I, I kind of want to start with, you know, so
3: if people who listen to our show, you know, some people are very, very well versed in consent culture, have been to consent workshops, things like that. Um, and some people who listen to our show are very much not, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, what can someone expect? What's a brief rundown of like, what's the place that you start with a client and what might they expect from working with you?
0: Yeah. Um, so privately, uh what I do is I go over several different frameworks and structures for, for consent and like consent vocabulary. Um, so that's, that's always the first session. Um, so that we're operating from the same, uh, like basic foundation and that we share a common language. Um, and that's also what I do in these, in these classes, in my intro classes. Um, but then when I work privately with people, um, I get really into like where they, um, where they struggle to advocate for themselves. Um, we, we often end up really simply purely like practicing um, like scripts, like we'll just sort of practice saying like, Hey, this is my boundary. Okay, great. Thanks for telling me. And then it's like, um, Hey, I asked you not to touch me there. And then I'll say back to them, like, You're totally right. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. It won't happen again. And then we feel the difference between when I say, thank you for stating your boundary. I'm glad to know that. Um, The difference between that and, oh, I'm sorry. Hmm. Because the sorry like falls really flat. Um, Right. And it can, and then it really starts to go in any number of directions. So like a lot of the work that I end up doing with private clients is like, if someone is struggling, um, if someone is, if someone is str- struggling to do kind of like mundane daily tasks, what we'll do is kind of infuse those tasks with meaning. So there's kind of a spiritual component to, to this work. Um, and, you know, that takes on whatever form is meaningful to, to the client. Um, and, and the first thing I do is ask them about their feelings about the word spiritual. Um, because there's other words that I can use if someone doesn't like that word, like mindfulness or attention or meaning, you know, um, like I'll just give a personal example. So I, I don't always want to, I don't, I often like let myself go to sleep without brushing my teeth and (laughs) something that I have found really helped me, um, get more excited to brush my teeth was when i instituted um kind of a a gratitude meditation into my toothbrushing practice so when i brush my teeth now I, I say to myself i'm so grateful for my teeth and i'm so grateful for this toothbrush <laughs> and i'm so glad i don't have to go to the dentist and you know so that instead of just kind of doing this thing meaninglessly like oh i have to do it i guess i have to do it um it now has this this meaning and kind of this, um, this dialogue a little bit, and there's a little more awareness and attention placed on on the action and actually like the intention of the activity more so than just just the activity itself, kind of devoid of meaning.
1: Yeah, it's it was interesting that you were mentioning before about practicing with clients, and it's mm. funny because I feel like in our most recent two or three episodes. Practicing has come up in that Mm -hmm. about like, well, how do you actually do this for yourself? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's practicing, especially if you can find someone else to practice with you. So that's just such a good example of how helpful that can be. And I was curious in your example. As part of that practice, do you also practice with people when the response is not so positive?
0: Yeah, yeah. So something that um Well, so, so a lot of this work kind of revolves around, um, feeling your, your embodied response to something that someone else says or how you feel. And so what I try to do is practice the, the positive version with somebody. And sometimes this is like, sometimes this is about race. Sometimes it's about other like identity intersections and it's, it's not sexual at all. In fact, most of the time I'm not dealing with, with sex. Um, it's, it's a lot more relational. Uh, and so what, what I try to do is sort of is practice the really positive version and ask the, and ask the client, like, how does that feel in your body? Like, where do you feel that? And, and, you know, it's often like I, my shoulders just relax or like, Oh my God, I can breathe. Um, and then we will practice like a, a negative one, um, mm. which is what we so often run into, which is like, Hey, um, you know, I asked you not to touch me there. And then the answer is like, Oh, I thought it was okay because last time I, t-, you know, like that's usually how it goes. Right. And, and then I'll say, um, like, where do you feel that? And then they're able to identify like tension in their chest or tension in their forehead or their shoulders went up or their breathing is constricted. And then we talk about the ways that recognizing those in, those bodily responses, those really visceral responses can can indicate to you a lot sooner than your brain is consciously aware that you're in a situation that you don't want to be in anymore. Mm. Or that, you know, if you start to notice that every time you hang out with this one person you get a tension in your chest and your shoulders and Mm. your breathing is restricted. And every time you leave, you can breathe more easily and your shoulders relax. Like that can be an indicator to you that that's not a healthy person for you to be around. And you don't need to like logic your way out of it. You Mm. don't need to go down that kind of like justification path or making excuses path. You can be like, you know what? It doesn't feel good. Right. That's very
2: powerful.
3: Yeah, I'm curious to clarify a little bit because I think we are so used to talking about consent within just specifically the sexual framework. Like it goes so beyond it. And so, of course, you don't need to share like nitty gritty details of your clients. But I am curious about like more specifics of like the kind of things that people come to you that are not based about negotiating consent around sex.
0: Well, I'll talk about some. So I, I teach these classes and, and one of the intro classes that I teach is I teach two different intro classes. One is an interpersonal class that has nothing to do with sex. And then one is a, a sex class. So it's an intro to, to consent and boundaries with, around sex. Um, and the interpersonal one, I actually find a lot more interesting hmm. because we don't realize the ways that consent comes up. Constantly in our personal lives, so so here's just like an, an incredibly simplistic example. Um, I was with a friend uh, several months ago, we were at his house, and I, uh, we were, we were going to go somewhere else and we were going to get in the car, and I didn't want to drive, and so I was going to say, "Do you want to drive?" And then I realized that if I said it that way, I was making it seem like I was offering him something. <laughs> do you want to drive? As though he would be like, oh my gosh, thank you. Yes, I would love to. <laughs> when in fact, my motive was that I didn't want to drive. And so there, there's ways that we can modify our language to be clearer about what our desires are and who, who it's for. Like I was making it seem like I was offering him something for him. Do you want to drive? But instead, I, it was really for me. I, my desire was not to drive. And so I said, would you drive? (laughs) And then by doing it that way, I was giving him um, the the ability to like make an informed decision about what it was that he was agreeing to.
3: Right. That makes a lot more sense. And it is funny how like those situations come up just all the time. And depending on your background, like your cultural background, your class background, your gender background, your race background, like we've been so culturized in so many different ways to deal with that interaction, to either soften it, or say it indirectly, or kind of minimize the impact of what a no might look like on us that it's like we do have this whole big grab bag of tools for negotiating consent in these situations, some of them potentially healthier and more effective than others. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We So the three of us all did a consent workshop thing maybe a couple years ago at a conference um, that was super fascinating, but one of the things they talked about in that was the difference between am I doing something to you for your benefit or am I doing it to you for my benefit? And what you just brought up is exactly that. And I remember during that in the part where you with your partner had to, you know, say, you know, may I do this to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was in a, you know, had to be a non-sexual, you know, it's a public setting. Uh, But I want to do this to you, but for my enjoyment Mm -hmm. and it was really hard to one to think of it and then two to then not start doing it and then worrying about how they're thinking about it rather than focusing on enjoying it yourself but just the way mm-hmm. that we get all that so crossed up
0: with yeah. itself
1: about like who's this for
0: right i finally sort of found like a really clear example i think of like um of of that so like if you you know typically we think of like a massage is um you know it's for the recipient so the person who's giving the massage who's doing the action is also giving the gift of the massage and it's for the recipient but if if i were in massage school and i needed to practice and i said to a friend can i practice this massage technique on you we're both still getting something out of it but it's for me it's actually mm-hmm. for me like i'm I'm the one who needs the practice and you're actually doing me a favor. And so being able to to make that distinction, I think, is is so incredibly important because also then as a massage practitioner, as a masseuse, you want to make sure that you are actually doing the massage for the other person, because if you walk away satisfied and they don't, then you're not good at your job.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So. I do want to go back to theater and film and television just a little bit because that is where you and I met. You were the intimacy coordinator for The Wild Party, which was a show that sadly is on hold (laughs) until further notice because of COVID-19. But um, yeah, we did a lot of the things that you're discussing at this level because – the show itself is very sexual in nature. And there is there isn't rape on stage. There are people who are kissing all over the place. And generally, it's just a lot of frivolity and touching and various things. But um, something that you said earlier, the fact that like having an intimacy coordinator on a set or in a show setting like a theater setting that's only been around for maybe the last year and a half is really astounding to me. But I I think that's definitely true because I haven't seen anything regarding having like full time intimacy coordinators on staff until very, very recently. But do you think like the Me Too movement sort of moved that forward or why is this happening now in a way that it wasn't happening before? And do you think that it will be sort of the norm more as time goes on?
0: Yeah, so um So intimacy directors are the term for, for this job in theater, um, in TV, we don't use the word director because we're not directors and we're not in the DGA and it's, um, you know, we're not, we can't call ourselves directors. So, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, and we're also not there to direct the scene, but in the theater, uh, intimacy directors often do actually get like handed the scene and basically take the reins for that scene. Um, So Intimacy Direction for theater has been around, um, as long, uh, like since as early as 2007 or so. Oh wow, Um, okay. Yeah. And there was a group called Intimacy Directors International that was, that's based in New York. They're now called uh, IDC, which is Intimacy Directors and Coordinators. Um, but they've been around for a while. I don't know the exact number of how long they've been around, but they've been around for a while and they've been training intimacy directors for the theater. Um. And what happened was that they were starting to, to, this idea of intimacy coordination was starting to come up um, several months before October of 2017 when the Harvey Weinstein article came out, I believe. I may be screwing up, and I'm like thinking of the people who are going to listen to this podcast and be like, Mia, you're wrong. And I <laughs> I very well may be wrong. But I I'm pretty sure that it was kind of like, starting to grow and kind of coalesce before the article came out and then the me too movement really like hit a fever pitch um and i also want to acknowledge that the me too movement had been around for a good long time too with toronto burke but Mm -hmm. uh it really came into like very much national mainstream consciousness after that article came out um and then uh there was a lot of press around the intimacy coordinator on The Deuce for HBO, um, which was Alicia Rodas. And so she, she was, I, again, oh gosh. I'm pretty sure she's one of the founding members of IDI of ID uh, now IDC. And so she was trained as a intimacy director and also had a stunt background. So when the deuce was looking for someone to act as a buffer between the actors and the the production and the directors and the writers, um they found her and she became the first intimacy coordinator for television. And so when you
2: say buffer do you literally mean like the that the intimacy or coordinator, I guess, in that case, is there to speak to the actor and be able to, like, figure out what they're comfortable with or not, and then be able to relay that back to the director so that it doesn't have to be that, like, super one on one in a potentially uncomfortable setting.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Essentially to, to
0: mediate the power dynamic.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I was curious about the power dynamic because obviously there are these sort of power dynamics between an actor or even like a series regular and maybe a guest star or um, a director and a producer versus an actor. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, in kind of talking about those power dynamics, those same power dynamics are in other types of workplaces as well. So are there ways in which people can manage that? in a workplace situation. And like, is there a potential for maybe intimacy coordination to happen? Not maybe with that specific name, but in a more workplace, like normal workplace setting?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's I, I hope that that's where we're headed. Um, I mean, that's certainly like it's been on my website for a long time that I offer the you know, because I offer these classes to acting studios and directing classes, and I've taught them all over. And, uh, and so I put in my, on my website and I offer them to organizations and religious institutions and classrooms all over the place. Religious and no Religious
2: institutions. No, yeah. Fascinating. I, yeah.
0: Well, there's a, a lot, a lot there. Sure. Um, yeah. But no one has ever approached me for, for any reason outside of like training, um, you know, offering hmm. these classes to, uh, to acting, acting students, producing students and directing students. So... I would love to see that happen on a larger scale, scale elsewhere. I think that anywhere, anywhere that there is a, uh, like sexual harassment training, Mm -hmm. there should also be because, because that is the negative, right? That's like, don't do this. Don't do that. But it doesn't offer how to do stuff. Right. And it doesn't offer, um, any, uh, any practice, um, and any, and, or any nuance. So,
2: you know,
0: I think in, in these classes that, that I do, I mean, the one that you did, Emily, like, I don't, I can't do this on zoom anymore, but there was some, there was some touch. There was some like very low grade, harmless, um, consensual touch where we practice saying no. And then we practice saying Yes, but not having the action done to us. And then we practice saying yes or no and then experiencing the action. And then we practice setting up expectations about what the action is going to be. And then we practice asking each other, was that what you expected based on what I said? And so we practice like getting better and more specific about our communication and then also really feeling into ourselves about, am I comfortable with you bopping me on the nose? Am yeah. I comfortable with you squeezing my elbow? Am I comfortable with you tying my shoe? Mm-hmm. Um, Am I comfortable with you standing behind me?
2: Um, Yeah, I think that's so fascinating because often you don't know until it occurs. Yeah. And I think in those moments too, like maybe conceptually you'd be able to say, yeah, okay, if somebody like stood really close behind me and I knew who it was, I'd be okay with that. But when it happens in the moment, you can have a very strong visceral reaction to it that perhaps you didn't even expect. Yeah, so that of, is really interesting, having that one-on-one interaction in that way.
0: Yeah. One of the ones that comes up a lot is that almost in every class that I teach, someone someone says, can I like bend down and untie and retie your shoe? Thinking like, whatever, no big deal. Yeah. And then the person says, okay. And then all of a sudden, there's this person whose head is right in your crotch and there's this shift in height. And there's like this kind of act of servitude, it feels like a little bit. And all of a sudden, like the whole dynamic is thrown off. And then what happens is the, the person who tied the shoe often says, um, you know, was that what you expected? And the other person says, um, you know, you did exactly what you said you were going to do, but I felt completely different from what I was expecting to feel. Um, and being able to even parse that out, like sometimes things are not what we expected but they're okay. And sometimes they're exactly what we expected and they're not okay. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah. I think something that, that the whole conversation about consent and stuff always brings up for me is that culturally I I feel like we're brought up here in the U S at least. And I think a lot of Western society in this very like contract focused culture of like, well, you signed a thing, so there's no backseas, even if it Yum. wasn't what you expected. And we see that yep. all the time on our TV shows. Oh, you know, I've yeah. been I've been catching up on Silicon Valley recently, and that's like <laughs> the recurring theme through <laughs> most of the seasons of that of like getting themselves in bad situations by not understanding the contract they were signing entirely or the fine print. And right. what sucks about that. Is that while that may make for very interesting legal dramas and intrigue, <laughs> it's not a good setup for how consent conversations, even in, on mundane things, should go, which is that it's like this ongoing conversation and not right. just, a, oh, well, X happened. So therefore, why,
0: you know, there's OK, so like a lot of times. When I talk about the work that I do, someone will crack a joke about how, well, now, you know, celebrities make you sign a contract that you agreed to have sex with them so that you can't, um, like file rape charges after the fact. And I, I do believe that that is happening. However, is. if consent is ongoing and reversible, then just because I signed a contract five minutes ago that said, yes, I'm having sex with you by my own volition. <laughs> That doesn't mean that now I still have to do it or that you can't then push my limits or, or even rape or assault somebody because just because I agree to have sex with you, that's not really giving specific consent. I didn't agree to every single sex act and being touched in every single place and all those different things. Um, and I'm allowed to change my mind. So those contra, I mean, you know, whether, whether they're mythical or real, um, they're irrelevant they're they're not really addressing the nuances of consent and also what you're bringing up is this idea of consent as permission but i see that as just like the tip of the iceberg of what consent is like consent is really an agreement that we make with people it's not just like can i do this yes you can okay consent has happened though that's one form of consent um But consent is an agreement and something that you update constantly and consent as a practice. Consent as a practice and a language and vocabulary and a structure and a way of thinking, um, I think, is a lot more of what we need to be learning and teaching um, and and working towards rather than like, you know, when people say, make sure you get consent. And what they really mean is like, ask if you can do something. Mm. Right. I I
3: think another important part of this conversation is that you know, JC pointed out us having this very like contract based transactional culture. And I think what's really important in the work that you do, Mia, is practicing not just the positive, but also practicing the situations when someone messes up, right. you know, or when there's a, a mismatch in expectations, when either it's, oh, what I heard you say that created expectation that was different than what actually happened versus, oh, you did exactly what I expected, but it felt different. Because I think that that's also where we get into the weeds as well, coming from this very black and white transactional culture is that then we can get into the weeds of like, well, you said you would do this, but then I felt differently. And so you're a bad person, you know, and instead of there being a script there to follow or words there to follow, to rectify that, to repair that, to get us back on track, you know, because I think that's also another important part of this work is also creating what's the structure for turning to when someone makes a mistake or when there is a lapse in communication, like how do we get back
0: on track there? Right. Right. I think, I think the the script is really helpful because what I find so interesting is that like, even when I, even when I tell people like, okay, the exercise that we're going to do is like, you're going to ask each other if you can do really silly things like poke someone in the forehead or like, you know, tap someone on the shoulder. But the other person is just going to say no, they're just gonna say no, no, no every time. So I'm giving you a script. I'm telling you just say no. And it's still incredibly hard to say no. It's so many people still say that was so hard. Like yeah. and it still felt like rejection to the other person. So like even though they knew it was coming, people will still feel rejected. So what's what's amazing about these scripts even though they can sometimes feel really like kind of silly and clunky is like when you really check in with how they make you feel um it's so ingrained. Like it's so in our blood and our bodies. There's just no way around it. Like we are programmed to feel rejected when we hear no. So then what we have to learn is how to ex- feel and then express genuine gratitude when someone tells us no. We have to train ourselves to do that.
1: Yeah, that that for me was the huge mental change during the first one of these like consent workshops that I did was... Not so much the learning how to say no, although that was also its own challenge. But the thing that was the most like, I didn't even know I didn't know it was the thanking the person as a response rather than, oh, uh, sorry.
0: Mm. Oh, I shouldn't have asked.
1: Right, right. Oh, I've screwed up now somehow for even asking. But it's like, oh, thank you for letting me know. I really appreciate that. And as I've thought about that more, it's like become even more, more impactful to me, I guess, this idea that because it's so hard to say no, if someone ever does clearly communicate a no to you, it's like they've given you a gift. They've done something that's hard. They've done something that takes a lot of courage, potentially, to tell you that. And now, you know, like, it's actually clear. And it's like, wow, thank you. Thank you for that. And that, for me, like, really actually helped a ton in terms of receiving rejection, too. And, like, not having to feel like rejection, I guess.
0: Right. Because it takes you out of your ego. It takes you out of your uh, spiral of insecurity of like, oh, I fucked up. I shouldn't have asked. Oh, shit, shit, shit. You yeah. know, like this is so embarrassing. And, and cause that's the feeling that we feel. And then we're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that's really ego based too. Like that so often apologizing is like, please forgive me. I screwed up. Please, please, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And the, the gratitude takes, does two things. It takes us out of our own head and away from our own ego but it also lets the other person know, I actually hear you like, sorry Mm. is so, uh, kind of dismissive and, and perfunctory. But the thank you is like, I really, really heard what you said. The first time that I had an experience, um, where someone like in my personal life, um, where I, I was fooling around with someone and I, um, I was getting kind of nervous and I was like, you know what, I'm, I've been like trained the whole time that I was, well, maybe I should back up. All right. The whole time I was training to be an intimacy coordinator, I did not have sex for like eight months. I was so sick. I was like incredibly, incredibly sick. This was when I was dealing with all this autoimmune and gut stuff. It was all like coming to a head and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like a conscious decision to be celibate. It was just that I like, I had none of that energy in my body. There was just like nothing going on in there. But it was so ironic that I was like training to do this job and learning about consent and boundaries and sex and bodies and all this stuff. Um, And like, it was just so not part of my life at the time. And it was also kind of bizarre how much it like linked up time wise. Like it was like, I started training like two weeks after I broke up with somebody and then like Mm. stopped training and then like immediately started dating. It was really weird. It was sort of (laughs) bizarre. Um, But I was afraid that this training was going to like ruin my sex life. Like I was going to be so picky and have such Mm -hmm. high standards. um, And that, you know, that nobody was going to want to have sex with me. And instead the complete opposite happened. I somehow unconsciously, I mean, my, my vibration must've changed because I started drawing people to me who were so well-practiced in consent and had all this experience in like BDSM and kink and all this stuff. And I was like, this is so crazy. I didn't even have to do this consciously. And so I started sleeping with somebody and, um, well, this was before we were sleeping together. We, we were like fooling around and it was kind of getting to a point where I was like, well, do you want to move? you know, where does, where do you want this to go? And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to share, um, that I'm feeling really nervous. And, and he was like, okay, do you want to like pause and just talk about it for a second and sit up? Wow. I was blown away. (laughs) I I was blown away. I couldn't, I truly couldn't believe it. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to (laughs) do. And I sat up and we started, and he was like, is it emotional? Is there like a specific thing? And I was like, and he was like, you don't have to share with me, but if you want to, like, let's talk about it. I was like, yeah, there's a, there's a trauma. And so I started telling him, about this trauma. And I was now trauma informed. And so I was simultaneously like having an experience and observing myself having an experience of like, Oh, wow, I'm like really hot. And uh, my heart's pounding. And I'm like, not making eye contact with you as I tell you this. And I'm like playing with the quilt. I'm like fiddling with, you know, I'm like nervously fiddling. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Like, this is exactly what you would think would happen if I were nervous. And, and I shared it with him. And he said, Thank you so much for telling me that. I am so glad to know that and i and and it was so clear that he then felt like he could treat me better moving forward and I mean, I'm getting like a little for Clem talking about it because it was mm. just so it was so new and it was so shocking and so simple Wow. It was so incredibly simple,
3: Cheers. yeah. Well, I think that's a really good segue. You know, we want to spend a little more time talking about uh, navigating these things in personal romantic relationships, you know, Mm -hmm. not just in the workplace, not just with people who are brand new to you. Before we do that, we are going to take a quick break to talk about some of the sponsors for this week's episode.
1: At LuckyLandSlots.com,
2: available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamAndEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also
3: That's Multi, M-U-L-T-I at AdamandEve.com, AdamMail.com, or Eve'sToys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. So let's move along to talking about consent and what role that plays in your personal relationships, maybe your long-term relationships. So outside of specifically like doing something like going to a consent workshop or things like that, what are some things that couples can do to establish and enforce personal boundaries and navigate personal consent in their own relationships?
0: Hmm. Um, well, I love this three-minute game, Betty Martin's three-minute game. Um It's the, the basis of it is like asking, like giving and receiving. So like asking someone, um, you know, what do you want to do to me? And then what do you want me to do to you? Um, and kind of practicing both like making offers and making requests. Um, that's a really good one.
1: And how how does the how does the game work? Then what? Yeah, is that for three minutes? Oh then yeah, yeah. And then you do it three for three yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it.
0: Um and then you can add components like like feedback. Like maybe if you, you know, then you can give people feedback afterwards. One thing that um that I did recently that was fun, um, that I was guided through at an event was like um practicing giving and receiving feedback just by hand massage. So like, you know, you just give someone a hand massage for, for two minutes and you, every time you move or, or change pressure or change stroke, like whether it's circles or up and down or side to side, you, you check in, you know, like, is this better than this? Do you like this? Is this better? Um, and then you watch their face and you watch their reactions and you watch for like nonverbal cues. Um, And, and you just keep checking, checking in. And, and some people start to find that like, like I'm a lot better at asking questions than I am at, um, giving feedback. Mm, (laughs) So like I can, I can request feedback, but I have a harder time giving feedback. Um, so just like starting to notice those things kind of about yourself and, and practicing that. Um, also I really think practicing these scripts, like before you're in the heat of the moment. So um you know one one of the examples that i love that i heard on um on queer sex ed is like so in a in a bdsm context like if you've if if you've decided that if the dom calls the sub um like a a slut and you've agreed on that uh like calling a safe word can be really really scary and you don't want to disappoint anybody also doms are often really um hesitant to call safe words like it's sort of um you know a misconception that like the safe word is for the sub exclusively yeah um but so being able to practice ahead of time like uh don't just agree on a safe word practice saying the safe word before you need the safe word so if your safe word is potato and you want to say um okay, let's practice this, um, potato. And then the other person says, thank you for saying potato slut. (laughs) (laughs) You know, then you're like, then you're, you've done it. You've like gotten it out Mm. of the way. So often, like the, the scariest time to do anything is the first time. And once Mm. you've kind of gotten it out, um, it's a lot, it's so much easier to do it. So I think like, I think, especially when you know someone really well, like being able to kind of imagine future situations and then like how you like practicing ahead of time, how you want to be able to communicate about something and then, um, yeah, practicing it so that later you can be like, oh, I've already done this. It's like in my body. I am, I've done it before. This is familiar. And so even though you're now in the heat of the moment and you're not necessarily totally in control of all of your wits, You've done it before. Um, Yeah. yeah. Other than that, I'd have to really, really dig in.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we were talking earlier uh, about power dynamics and how that can show up, you know, like with a director to an actor or you know, the star of a show to someone who's just has a few lines, right? Or mm-hmm. they're just, you know, hot girl number one or like whatever their <laughs> role is, right? There's a very serious power dynamic there between those people.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm curious, though, because I feel like this also comes up potentially in all of our relationships, our day-to-day relationships, not only with people that we work with, where there's sort of a, a clear hierarchy there, mm-hmm. but also with... The way that we interact with, I don't know, people in the service industry or people who make less money than us or people who make more money than us or, Mm -hmm. you know, like whatever race, gender, like so many different things that can create this kind of power structure that we can often be unaware of, particularly if we're the one in the position with more power, we tend to not be as aware of it. Um, And I'm just curious if there's like if, if there's ways that. People can approach that in their personal lives that that does, I guess, feel natural or uh, what I've loved so much about what you've been sharing is kind of the real life experience of here's how this looks in real life, not just Mm -hmm. theoretical. Oh, yeah. Consent is X, Y and Z. See? We're done. (laughs) I'm curious about if if you found that with your clients or anything, like how that shows up in surprising ways. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, I think the like the biggest one is is like race and gender. So the biggest ones and, uh, you know, they overlap constantly. But so like, just let's just let's just think theoretically about a um, like a I mean, I'm putting it in I'm going to put it into a sexual context unless you want me to specifically avoid that.
1: Yeah, no, we'll do do a sexual one and okay. then maybe I'll challenge you to do a non sexual one. <laughs>
0: okay. So so in a sexual one, like if we want to talk about race and genders. So like say say you're doing like dom sub slave play mm-hmm. and you have a black man and a white woman in a relationship. That's right. one power dynamic. And then who's and then, you know, say he's dominant and she's submissive. Like, what's that scene like? And then if you have um her being dominant, him being submissive, then what's that scene like? And also like the, the, um, the aftercare that's gonna be involved in that. Like the aftercare in that scene is gonna be so historically and contextually loaded in a way mm. that it's not gonna be between two white people or even two black people or two, just two people of the same race. Right. Um, and then say it's a, a black woman and a white man, different power dynamic. And depending on who's the sub and who's the dom, different power dynamic. So um, we have to be thinking like intersectionally about even our sex lives and and the ways that those power dynamics play out, um, because we're each going to have very different triggers that are going to be based in our family structures, our history, our inherited trauma, um, you know, society like societal implications and and histories of of all the different complexities of who we are. Um, so I think, I think it's really easy for, for a lot of folks to kind of disregard those power dynamics in their private lives and like hope or strive to live in, live privately in a vacuum, um, outside of those contexts. Um, but but we simply can't, and that's not a really good way to try to take care of each other. Um, so so I think acknowledging those power dynamics, talking about those power dynamics, um, and figuring out the ways that they kind of, you know, can continue to be hot, because power dynamics are hot. <laughs> and that's like something that we're all going to have to kind of grapple with in like, in the wake of this movement of like, are, you know, are our workplace relationships forbidden now? no they're going to keep happening so how do we navigate them ethically and how do we how do we navigate consensual relationships when there is a power dynamic at play we cannot remove power and we cannot prevent people from falling in love
1: right yeah i was i was thinking about this because i watched uh, a tiktok from the rock recently and i was <laughs> bear with me this is gonna be a little bit i tangent. can't wait okay. to see where this
2: goes is this i going to show don't news? know what tiktok is <laughs> what is tiktok okay keep going
1: okay so it has nothing to do with what it, the contents of his tiktok but i was just thinking about about the rock um and what a an imposing intimidating physical figure he is right, right. just being this huge super muscular guy with no hair uh that there's a certain like feeling that that gives you there's a certain sort of power like a physical power inherent in that Um, and then I was thinking though about in every you know interview and video and everything he just seems like a little teddy bear like he seems so (laughs) sweet and it kind of got me thinking about that because I noticed for me a few years ago I went through this weird period of adjustment with that because I grew up as this little skinny nerdy kid And so the way I interacted with the world was as this little skinny nerdy kid who gets pushed around, like isn't tough, is physically intimidated by other men, is not intimidating to women, or at least I felt that I wasn't. I realize now that's not actually probably how that was experienced, but, you know, that was my reality. That's how I thought I was. And then a few years ago, I went through this period of getting into weightlifting and I got significantly larger than i was i think emily and dedeker can attest that like my just sort of physical presence got a lot bigger and stronger and i found that it created this weird disconnect with the people i was interacting with where i wasn't getting sort of the same reactions that i used to get from my interactions with men or women or whoever and it took me quite a while to realize it's like oh because in my head i'm still this thing which gets this response But in everyone else's reality, I'm something else. And that might not be the same for everyone. But just seeing that, like, that also changes. And you might not even be aware that it's changed because you still are usually the scared little kid version of yourself that's inside.
0: Well, you're making me think of, like, girls who shoot through puberty in high school or middle school. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, being suddenly totally sexualized by by Mm -hmm. people around them and just having kind of no idea what's going on. Um, and maybe like at first enjoying the attention and then like, and then, and then shifting it and realizing like, oh, this is actually like really gross and predatory. Um, I mean, I, I went, I went through that myself. I remember feeling like, when am I ever going to go through puberty? Like, is this ever going to happen for me? Mm -hmm. And then finally it did. And there was a period of time where I was being objectified. Um, and I and I liked it. Like there was some pleasure that I was taking in being noticed in a way that I hadn't been noticed before. And then it, it, it took me a little while to start to realize like, oh, actually, I, I really don't like this attention. The way that I'm getting it is, and now I have the language to say, like, it, it was unintentional. You know, it was a very objectifying, non-consensual, not unintentional. It was non-consensual. And it was, um, very objectifying and it was, you know, from strangers and I but I had to really mm. then update my perception of myself. Right. Like mm. I have to be very and I think that we all have to be this way. This is something that like this kind of is making me think about this idea like I've heard this from from so many people and it it really just kind of grosses me out when people are like, "Well, I just flirt with everyone. I flirt with everyone. I'm just a flirtatious person." And I just feel like, you know, we have to be willing to acknowledge the effect that we have on people like Mm. we cannot pretend to be blind to that and if the effect that you're having on people is that you set their hopes up in a way and make them feel a certain way uh, that that makes you feel good because you like the response that that gets for you Mm. um like you you have to be held accountable to um, unless you're one of those awful people who says like your feelings are your problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, then like we have to be willing to take some accountability. If the fee, if the information that we're getting, even non-verbally is like, I'm starting to see that I have this effect on people. Um, is that the effect that I want to have on people? Is it miscommunicating my intentions? Is it accurate about where I plan to follow through on certain things and how I plan to continue these dynamics? If it's not, then you're miscommunicating. You're not communicating well. And so if to to walk around saying like, well, I just flirt with everyone, um, or, or, you know, the, 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 to go back to the, like the puberty example, like to be a, I think, I think that we can kind of use that in our favor when it comes to insecurity, because if I walk around thinking that I'm a hideous monster, but People are constantly checking me out and asking me out and flirting with me, then there's a disconnect between like how i how I see myself and the in, the information that I'm receiving about how other people see me, and we have to be able to kind of like meld those two so that we have an accurate idea of who we are and how other people see us um, otherwise you know I don't know then you get into things like like body dysmorphia or whatever. Like, you know, that's just, just whole other whole other can of worms. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of went on a tangent there. So <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> No, it's it's I think it makes sense. It's it's that fact that like we have to to learn to marry the fact that we have this subjective reality that sometimes doesn't fall in line with everybody else's yeah. subjective reality, you know? And I think that's hard because it's kind of like you're all you're pretty much Always the the protagonist of your own story, not always the Mm. hero necessarily, but at least the protagonist. And you know what your motivations are and you know what your thoughts are and you know what your feelings are in any given moment. And it can be so easy, I think, to project that into a situation, you know, like, like your example, the person who's like, Oh, yeah, I just flirt with everyone. And we can kind of project like, Well, I know that I don't have a bad intention with that. Right? You know, and I know, why can't other people tell? Why can't other people know that, you know, or I know, you know, like, for you, Jace, like, I know that on the inside, I'm a skinny, nerdy kid, right? You know, And, and that's what motivates me. So So why wouldn't other people pick up on that, you know, that I think that is something that I think personally, is just a really important part of growing up, which is just learning that we all have these subjective realities and uh, we just need to make space for that. Um, you know, I want to bring us back to talking about having these kind of specific consent conversations within the context of longer term romantic relationships, because I think with some people there can be this sense of dread. There could be this sense that like, oh, this obsession with consent, we just want everyone to focus on being the worry and the concern and it's going to drain all the fun out of it and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you can you talk about the ways that an ongoing focus on consent in both new relationships and established ongoing relationships can actually add fun and improve a relationship instead of just focusing on like, oh, well, maybe it'll decrease some badness.
0: Yeah. As you were saying that my my note that I wrote to myself is, Consent is so sexy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Okay, so like, uh, if you think about consent, like you can use consent as dirty talk. Um, Consent also, okay, well, I'll back up for a second. Consent is, as we were talking about, consent is not just permission. So it's not just going to be, can I squeeze your boob, right? Uh Can I uh, grab your butt? It's going to be like, it might be in the, in the, because you've established that that's something that you do together, it, consent might be as simple as doing it and looking at somebody's face to, to check if they're enjoying it. Like that might be consent, but consent can also be, so consent can also be an agreement and it can also be preparing someone's nervous system. So I'll talk about consent as an agreement first. So say, say you want to Go down on somebody and you want to do it for them, right? It's like in service of them and their pleasure. Okay. So you could set a timer and you could say for 20 minutes, I'm going to go down on you and it's for you. So I want direction and I want feedback unless you don't want to give it to me. And anytime that person then starts to think like, oh God, they've been doing this a really long time. Should, I, should we switch? Like, should I reciprocate? They can remind themselves, oh, no, we agreed that for 20 minutes, it's for me. And then you can switch. Instead of switching positions, you can continue doing the same action, but you can have the person who's doing the action do it for them. So then for the next 20 minutes, they, go, they continue to go down on you, but it's for them. And so then, mm-hmm. it's not going to be so much about feedback. It's going to be watching this person devour you and be creative with their expression of desire on your body. And that also might be where you start to learn new things that you like because you're not so focused on like, hey, this work, this usually works for me. Like, do you know, do this thing that I know will get me off. It's going to be more about witnessing them taking pleasure in you. So, like, that's that's a way to play with consent and as an agreement. Um, And then consent is preparing someone's nervous system. So like, uh, I'll give a non-sexual example first. I was at the dentist a couple months ago. And my dentist was probably unbeknownst to her practicing really good consent. She was saying to me, you know, I couldn't speak and I had the thing in my mouth. So she was like, um, wave your hand if you need to stop and give me a thumbs up if you're good. Okay, great. I have a safe word and I have a go word. And then, and then she said, okay, now you're going to feel a little air. Now you're going to feel a little water. It might be cold. We're about halfway done. Like to me, that was a consent practice because she was preparing my nervous system for what I could expect to happen. Um, And also giving me the tools to communicate with her about what was okay and what wasn't okay. So in a sexual scenario, if you say to someone, and, and, okay, so like, are you all familiar with the acronym FRIES for consent? Like, FRIES. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, you know, whatever. Some but please, but okay. you go over it real yes, quick for our listeners. Go over okay. it for all the right. listeners. So yeah. consent is freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. So I, I, I specifically want to talk about specific because I think that specific is the hot one. I mean, all the other ones are great, too. But specific can be really, really hot because you can say to someone... Um, I am going to lick you here, touch you here, squeeze you here, do this to you and do this to you and then watch their eyes light up. And then you have <laughs> consent. Mm. I don't think, and then, you know, if if they start to look off to the side or like break eye contact or kind of like, uh, you know, do one of those, like, okay, that's a no check in. Like, what about that? Do you not like, what do you want? You know, because sometimes it's like, let me take a shower first. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's not that they don't want you to do that to them. It's that they're just like worried about, you know, whatever. Like we all have our insecurities that prevent us from experiencing the utmost pleasure all the time. But, um, so that like, that's another way that consent can be super duper sexy consent. Consent can be planning the sex later, (laughs) you know, like if you like, Mm -hmm. instead of being like, would you like to have sex with me later? You can be like, um, here's what I want to do to you later. Uh, is that cool? <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the person can then like daydream all day about what you're gonna do to them later. Um and you've accomplished consent. Hmm.
1: I feel like this also even in a non sexual situation, in terms of like preparing the nervous system, like you said with your dentist, I could also see this even on a a day-to-day situation where, like, for example, my job when I'm there in the office in LA. Um, it's, with, you know, with some of the people there, I've become pretty close friends with over the several years that we've all worked together, but still having this sense of like, someone's going through a hard time. Like one of my coworkers, her her dad died last year. Um, and this question of like, when she's at work uh, of this, like, like, would, would you like a hug right now? or Or would you like your space? But like also mm-hmm. kind of giving the option for a no. So it's not just like, you have to say no to me. It's yeah. like, pick one or the other. Then it's like. She could say like, yeah, a hug would be great. Or it's like, no, I'll probably start crying if I got a hug. So I'd rather not mm-hmm. do that right now. It kind of either way sort of gave her like a, an, a, I guess, sort of that preparation for whatever it was going to be. Yeah. Rather than just kind of. You also. It, on them.
0: it sounds like you also made it really equally easy to say yes and no. I think. Right. Something that was taught to me in my training was you're only your yes is only enthusiastic if you are equally empowered to say no. Right. So if, if you don't actually feel that no is a viable option, or if you're scared to say no, or if you're not in the habit of saying no, and it's really hard for you to say no, then your yes is probably not, it's not as enthusiastic as it could be. And so if you if you, it sounds like you were taking the steps to help ensure that a no was just as easy as a yes. And I think that is like, that's a, a
2: beautiful thing. We've talked so much on this show about how in relationships often there, as you said, like there's that power dynamic, but a lot of um, people feel like, well, I'm with you. So I'm entitled to your time or your body or your energy or any of those things. And so it does become so hard to feel like you can say no to someone who you're so established with. And who maybe, you know, they're doing something really nice for you or they're taking care of you in a financial way because you've lost your job or something along those lines, you know, Mm -hmm. and to say no to that is really challenging. So, yeah, I guess in that kind of way, I mean, just with the things that you've talked about, are there ways in which people can maybe just practice like being able to say no to each other and make it so that it's not such a charged thing all the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would, I would practice it in like really trivial ways. Like, can I bop you Mm -hmm. on the nose kind of thing, you know, like just back to, back to that one where you just practice saying no and pay attention to what it feels like when it's, um, when the stakes are really low. Uh, and you know, if you practice saying no to like, can I, um, pour you a glass of water? No. Oh, thank you for telling me, you know, like if you, if you practice it with those really, really low stakes, it will get easier to, to do it when the stakes are higher. Um, I just want to kind of note that like, obviously we're talking about practicing this stuff within like a relatively healthy relationship.
2: Yeah, Um, exactly.
0: Yeah. So like, you know, if you're, if you are, if you're feeling if you are coerced or being forced to stay somewhere like you're you're not or if there's a looming threat of whatever physical emotional abuse violence whatever these things may be then like you're not really going to be able to practice this um most likely uh but in a in a relationship where that's not the case i think that um i think that we would hope that no one wants us to do stuff that we really don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think when we can sort of get over the mental hurdle to the other side, which is that um, you're giving someone the gift of not violating your boundaries. Um, then we, it, then it is a lot easier to appreciate when someone tells you no. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's like, that's only, you know, that's a, That's something that's only going to happen in in a pretty healthy relationship, like with a healthy foundation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we're at the end here. um, But for our listeners at home who, for example, might not have a partner specifically to practice this with or might not have that or are just interested in taking any of your classes or private coaching, or maybe even they have a business and are like, you know, actually like our You know, either we don't have a sexual harassment training seminar or we do. And it's shit because most (laughs) of them are. Uh, What are what are some of the things you offer there? And then where can people find that information about you?
0: Well, um, so I can I do these uh, these consent and, and boundary classes and I would be happy to offer them to like all over the place, I do think that they don't replace a sexual harassment training. Just from like an HR perspective, I don't really know, but I would I would imagine that you kind of have to have a certain kind of like probably state mandated thing. Um, but as a supplement, um, yeah, I would I would love to be doing that. Also, if anyone. Um, <laughs> once the industry is up and running, needs an intimacy coordinator, I will be available. Um, but you can find me on my website, which is com, And my Instagram is um, at Mia Schachter, which is S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. Um, and I'm not really on any other platforms.
1: Right. We'll also put those links in our show notes for this episode. So if you go to multiamory.com and find this episode 272, you can also get those links there.
2: Yeah, we'll link to your Instagram as well. So we are going to uh, do a bonus episode for our patrons as well with Mia. Um, A little bit talking about boundaries and relationships as well, maybe some violations of boundaries. Um, I know that you had a story (laughs) surrounding that in our current time, so we can talk about that a little bit more. Uh, So we're really interested to hear from you all out there about the types of maybe consent workshops that you've been to, if you've heard about you know, consent in a broader spectrum and what you think about it and how you are practicing it in your relationships. So the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info@multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Jace Lindgren, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvinetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on Multiamory.